It's a great joy and honor to be here, uh, California, before it collapses into the sea. <laughs> I thank uh, the University of Santa Barbara, uh, the Center for Catholic Studies and Antape, but I was contacted two years ago by uh, Mary uh, Rosenfeld, right? She asked me if I'd like to uh, come and give a talk to the group of spiritus group at the time and was expanded. And so, of course, um, I'd love to. I look at the audience, it's packed, and a lot of you are very young people, uh, students here. I am under no illusion that you young students come here in search of wisdom. <laughs> you are, I am told, in a class, and the professor asked you to come as extra credit, right? <laughs> and I said to him today, he said, what did you promise? Plenary indulgences. <laughs> Forgiving all the sins that you have committed and will ever commit in your life. So it's worth your while to be here tonight. <laughs> My name is Peter Pan. People call Peter Pan uh, sometimes. Um, I have a lot of uh, followers on campus. They are called Fannies. Uh, the fan around me. I am a refugee. I was a refugee. came here in 1975. That was 31 years ago. And of course, as a stranger, foreigner, I have to got any job I could find. So I was interviewed at the city of Plano for the garbage collector. And the guy who asked me said, uh, what education do you have? I said, I have a doctorate in theology. He said, oh, that qualified to be a garbage collector. <laughs> so I got a job for two and a half months, going around, and uh, the guy who gave me a job, we didn't know what his name was. We called him Mr. 210 because he paid us $2.10 an hour. And I worked for two months in the summer until the end of the summer, the job was finished. I had to look for a job teaching theology. And so I was hired to teach theology at the University of Dallas. Friends who knows me well say, well, Peter, what a big change, you know, garbage collecting, teaching theology, what a, you know. And I said, no, no, there's no change. Before I just simply collect it, now I give it back to people. <laughs> So here tonight for about 45 minutes, 50 minutes max, I'd like to present you some of my thoughts about whether Christianity is a, world, a, a Western religion, and if not, why not? And what are the opportunities and challenges as Christianity faces the world that is globalized, that is universal, that is more than just Western? I am... When Mary asked me to talk, she said, well, say something, because she listened to me at, I think, at one presentation. I recycle these talks, you know. And I asked whether if you repeat yourself, you commit plagiarism, you know. <laughs> now I am not going to repeat myself. But the topic I was asked to talk about Asian Christianity. And as Ante take over, and she asked me what to do, and so I was given, I was... Uh, thinking about this topic for two reasons. One, the reason is the lecture that Pope Benedict XVI gave at Regensburg University in June 12, uh, September 12, sorry, of last year. And then the second uh, 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 impetus for me to think about this topic 
is the reflection on the new development of Christianity, summarized under the slogan, Christianity as a world religion. So I will speak about briefly about these two things. And then in my second part, which is the first part, is introductory to the theme. The second part, I will speak at great length how Christianity came to be known as a Western religion and how false it is a picture of Christianity. The third part, which is perhaps the most interesting, is to see how Asian Christianity, particularly Asian Catholicism, can contribute to a new understanding of the nature and the mission of the church in our day. So those are three points. The first point, the speech that Pope Benedict XVI gave in, uh, at Regensburg University September 12. Now, the lecture that the Pope gave when he visited his former university, he was, he was professor there in the 60s, and he was so proud to be back this time, not as just professor of theology, but as Pope. And the lecture was entitled Faith, Reason, and the University, Memories and Reflections. So he was thinking about being at the university, what else to talk about but reason and faith, and remembering what he, had there, he has done as a professor and that uh, he proposed some reflection. Now, obviously, he was not speaking as infallibly as Cathedra, thanks be to God, so we can look at it critically and criticize it and reject it without any fear because he was talking simply a professor. And as you know, when you speak professor, people challenge you. So that's the way how he did. Now, the topic was faith and reason. And the point he was making is this. Christianity as opposed to Islam, and he quote a conversation between the emperor, so-called Manuel II Balaiologos, and a very learned Islamic scholar. He was quoting the text that he read a few weeks before, and he was citing the fact that the problem with Islam, according to him, is the breaking between faith and reason. The unity between faith and reason seems to him, although he was not a scholar of Islam, having read a few books about it, he thinks that that is the real problem. That is somehow the linkage, the intrinsic linkage between human reason and faith was broken. So much so, for example, he says that in Islam, God is considered as so supreme, so powerful, so absolute, that God can do anything God pleases, even if it goes against reason. But behind that argument, he was arguing for something much more extensive, because very often when you read this lecture that the Pope at Regensburg, people got very upset because of what he said about Islam, and that was the immediate reaction. And so there were a lot of violent reactions against the Pope for that. But for me, when I read this speech, I see that the challenge is not what he says about Islam offensive, though it was, but the real problem is how he conceived the relationship between faith and reason. And this is what I cite a few texts. That started my thinking rolling. He says that what characterizes 
Christianity is the unity of faith and reason. And that unity emerged from the encounter between the Bible on the one hand and Greek philosophy on the other. And he symbolized Greek philosophy by the word logos, reason. Right. And he, want, he goes on so far to say that, I quote, the encounter between the biblical message and Greek thought did not happen by chance. It's not something that happened by chance. It's within divine providence, according to him. And he says that the, it is not, I quote again, it is not surprising that Christianity, despite its origins and some significant developments in the East, so acknowledge, he acknowledged that Christianity originated in the East and some significant development. And this is the line that really shook me when I read it. Finally, took on its historically decisive character in Europe, unquote. In his view, this, I quote, critically purified Greek heritage forms an integral part of the Christian faith. There are two things he's affirmed here. The decisive character of Christianity is what? European. Number one. Number two, that this belongs to the, an intrinsic or integral part of the Christian faith. That's a vast claim. Huge claim for a pope to make. All right? That's his claim. Then he goes into the history of theology, he sees that this unity between faith and reason was challenged, was broken, was taken asunder, asunder by three movements. The first movement is the Protestant reform in the 16th century. According to his reading, Protestantism is predicated upon the emphasis on faith alone. Remember, you are justified by faith alone, by grace alone. Everything is alone. You know, it becomes like a slogan that summarizes somehow the Protestant spirit and reform. And so Benedict read the development of Western theology and he used the word de. Hellenization. This is a technical, you know, Hellenization means Greek, right? Hellenic Hellenization. And he sees the movement of Western theology as a kind of gradual de-Hellenization, moving away from the Greek spirit, which, as you recall, he says, form an integral part of the Christian faith. So he sees that a very great threat to Christianity. So the first phase was the Protestant reform in the 16th century. The second stage that he sees is the 19th century liberal German theology. Everything you know, originated in Germany, right? Theology was originated in Germany. And then it went to England, it was corrected in England, and then it went to America, it was corrupted in the United States. That's how you read the history of Western theology. But anyway, come back, he said, the liberal theology of 19th century, again, 
break away the unity of faith and religion. This time, the opposite. The Protestant reform put emphasis on faith alone, right? Liberal, uh, liberal theology put the emphasis on reason alone. It's the only reason. No revelation, no authority, no Bible. It's just pure reason. Okay, that's second phase. I read so far, I said, well, there's some truth to it. There's some truth to it. I don't, I don't worry about it. That's fine. This is a way to pass in a way. It's the third phase that cut me short. And he called it inculturation. And he says, this is the process is still going on. Now, as one who has done this kind of work for the last 20, 20-something years, and he said, this is dehellenization. I said, wait a minute. What's, what are I doing the last 25 years, dehellenizing Christian theology? He says this. I quote. Because the New Testament was, quote, written in Greek, as you know, written in Greek, and bears the imprint of the Greek spirit, unquote. It is therefore false, coarse, and lacking in precision, German, falsch, vergröbert, und ungenau. So he's very careful choosing all these adjectives. It's false, very coarse, not very bright, and lacking precision, you know, confused mind. To think, to think he says, that, quote, we must return to the simple message of the New Testament by passing its Greek heritage. In other words, for the Pope to think that we today, Americans or Chinese or Indians or Latin American, Mexican, to be a Christian, what should you do? You have to go back to the Greek period. I read until I said, hmm, this is very interesting idea. Very inter is it true that the Greek spirit, because the gospel was written in Greek, the Greek spirit is an imprint, bear the imprint of Greek spirit? And therefore, if you want to be a Christian today, I don't know, you come from California? Right. You have to become Greek first, at least in spirit, in order to be a true Christian. And I, I have one, would love to see every student in Santa Barbara study Greek, speak Greek, as I used to do when I was a little boy. But <laughs> you can't do that anymore. That's the one thing that started my ball rolling. Second thing that started my ball rolling, thinking about, is when I look at the movement the development of Christianity today. What happened in Christianity today? Now, if you look at the demographics of Christians, today there, is about, there are about six billion human beings in the world. Well, up, if you die tomorrow, one person less, one person born, one person more. What's about that? About two billions are Christians, okay? About two billion. Statistically, four, you know. It's pretty good size. Two billion out of six are Christians. 
about 1.2 billion are Catholics. So we are the largest Catholics, the largest people. By 2025, so 20 years from now, less than 20 years from now, the world will have 2.6 billion Christians. Now we are 2 billion, not at 20 years. We Catholics produce a lot of children, so we'll be 2.6 billion 20 years from now. Now, interesting is only half of them, half of these 2.6 billion Christians will live in Africa and Latin America. By 2050, another 45 years, 42 years, there will be about 3 billion Christians. And only, listen to this, only one-fifth, one-fifth will be white. So let's say five Christians by the year 2050, right? Only one of you is Anglo. Get used to it. Okay? Anglo-Christian by the year 2050 is as rare as a Buddhist Norwegian. <laughs> what do you see here? You see a tremendous demographic shift. What we call the global north to the global south. By the south I mean Asia, Latin America, and Africa, okay? By the North, I mean Europe, United States, and Canada. One in five. Imagine what that means. Now, having read John Paul II's speech, I asked myself, what happened 40, 50 years from now? Is it true that four out of five Christians had to take on the Greek spirit in order to live their Christian faith? That starts really a lot of thinking question. If you start taking Benedict XVI seriously, and you look at both the demographic, demographic things, you see, and you say, what's going on? What's going on? If four out of five live outside of the Western European sphere of, uh, of cultures, cultural center, what happened to them? What happened to the Chinese who wanted to be a Christian? Should that Chinese person absorb the Greek spirit in order to become a Christian? So those are the questions I like uh, let it do now. As a sort of uh, raise the issues that. Um, allow me to raise the questions. Okay, now second part. The first part is very short. The first part is presenting the questions. The second part is how has it become that Christianity is known as a Western religion? How is it possible for Pope Benedict XVI to say that Christianity has taken on a decisive characteristic 
character in Europe. How is that possible to say such a thing? Let me then give you some historical explanation, account of this, and how false, how false this idea that Christianity is a Western religion is. First, look at the origin of Christianity. Contrary to all thinking and all that, Christianity was not born in Italy, <laughs> France, Germany, United States. It was born, for God's sake, in the Middle East. So however you divide, I know, I am, you know, you know from the geogra geography and all landmass, Europe and Asia form one continent. You know, when you talk about geology, it's one landmass. Conventionally, we divided Christian, uh, Europe, uh, the, the one continent into Europe and the Orient. I will talk about when the term Europe emerges. Okay? But today, when you look at Palestine, Palestine is not Europe. Even by today, it's not Europe. It is part of Asia. And Asia, as you know, divided into Central Asia, the countries that were part of the Soviet Union, Kyrgyzstan, Afghanistan, you know, all those Estan countries, you know, Central. Then you have East Asia, which is China, Korea, Japan. You have South Asia, India, Sri Lanka, then you have Southeast Asia, Vietnam, the Philippines, Cambodia, Laos, and so forth. Okay. But you have part we call Central Asia, the, the, the Middle East. Uh, it's often called West Asia. When you look from my side, it's West Asia. Look from Europe, you call it Middle East. It all depends how you draw the map. But surely, Palestine was not part of Europe. It is of Asia. Number one. Number two, why do you think that is a Western? Because how you read the history of missions. How you read the history of the movement of expansion of Christianity. Now, which book that tells us about the earliest expansion of Christianity? The book of Acts. Now, when you read the book of Acts, what is the goal? Rome. That's the way how Luke constructs the movements of the earliest, the history of the earliest Christian movement. Peter, at the end of chapter 15, he disappeared. He went somewhere, period. You never know where he went. That's how it is. He went out of prison. Remember, he was the little prison. He knocked on the door and, and one girl comes and says, oh, that's Peter. Okay, welcome. And then the book of Acts said, he went elsewhere. He took a very long vacation. We never know where he went. But in the Christian tradition, where did he go? Rome. But the year 97, we have the first letter of Clement. Clement wrote a letter to the Christians in Corinth. 
The Corinthians were debating. The young people didn't like the old folks, and they say, "Okay, kick you out. We take over." A sort of, you know, uh, 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 problem that we had. The voice, the faithful, you know, voices or whatever. I'm kidding. Yeah. So Clement write a letter to the Corinthians. He said, "You can do that. These priests, these bishops, these leaders have done a good job." A heck of a job, right? You can't do that, so you have to restore order. And in the letter, for the first time ever, 96, 97, he said, "We have Peter and Paul in Rome. They die as martyrs in Rome, and so they are witnesses." So that was the first, the first, the first indication that Peter was in Rome. Before that, we didn't know where he was. And then, when you read the life story of Paul, his three missionary journeys, where did he end up? In Rome. And the book of Acts ended there. I didn't say that he was killed there. Or he just he might have then moved on to Spain. In the letter to the Romans, he said to them, "said I like to visit you, and once I visit, I like to go to Spain, because." Continue, but Luke have this kind of shorthand description of the expansion of Christianity is from Palestine through Asia Minor, and then finally end up in Rome. Rome was the center of the earth, and for him, for him, if you reach Rome, what have you done? You have reached everywhere. Remember chapter one when. Uh, the angel came back to him and said,、uh, "You know, why did you look up here? You know, what you Jesus gone?、So、you go back to Jerusalem, wait for there, and wait for the gift of God, and you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem、eh? until the ends of the earth." And for Luke, going to Rome is a fulfillment of that prophecy. You arrive like to Washington D.C., the capital, and that's it, the United States. And they think of the time is if you arrive in Rome, you arrive at the ends of the earth. Then, eventually, the history of Christian mission present present this from Rome. What else? The Pope sent all the missionaries all over the world to England to them.、Uh, In the 16th century to La- 14th century, to Latin America, 16th century to Asia, 19th century to Africa. So, the best image that you have of Christian mission is a net of airline. You know the airline? You know, you go to travel. You look at the at the end. You see all these things, and then you have headquarters like, let's say, American Airlines in Dallas, and you have hundreds of this. Somehow you get the idea that Rome is the center of the church, and every activity just sent out from Rome. It's a propaganda, <laughs> pure propaganda. It's not true. I'd like to show you this. Historical studies of Christian mission, early Christian missions, show the fallacy of this conventional reading of Acts, with its version of Christian expansion towards Rome, the West, and from the West 
out to the other parts of the globe. In fact, in the first four centuries, the most successful fields of mission were not Europe at all, at all, but West Asia and Africa. And the center of gravity is Syria. It is from Syria that you have missions that come out, not from Rome. Until this is true until the year 500, beginning of the 6th century. Now, until the, the year 500, the most vibrant, the most lively, the most influential Christian centers were not in Europe at all, but were found in Asian and African cities such as Damascus, today is Syria, Alexandria, today is Egypt, Aksum and Antioch, Aksum played a part of Ethiopia. And it was in Antioch that we are given the name Christians for the first time. And in countries such as Armenia, Armenia was the first Christian nation of the world, not Rome, Armenia. And then India, perhaps already beginning in the first century with the Apostle St. Thomas, St. Bartholomew. And then in the 8th century in China. Of the five ancient patriarchates, patriarch, right? Rome is the only one in the West. The other four are in Asia and Africa. For example, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Constantinople is in Asia Minor. In Asia, not in Europe. And one in Africa, and that is Alexandria. The first seven ecumenical councils that laid out the basic teachings, the doctrine of the faith, where is it held? All in Asia, Middle East. None of them in Europe. None. From Nicaea in 325, the first Nicaea, to Nicaea the second in 787. It's all in other countries, not in Europe. What the heck to say? How can you say that it takes a decisive character in Europe? Unless you draw the map of Europe to include also Palestine, everything else, you know, kind of expansion, you include everything into Europe. It just simply false to say that Christianity takes a decisive character in Europe. Now, as I said, the Pope making this speech not as infallible teaching, he was simply deliver uh, lectures like I do here now, and so he was doing that, and I think it's, it's quite chargeable. Now, the great theologians, the great theologian. I would challenge you to find any great theologian in the first five or six century that live in Europe, or European. None. Augustine, which is often said he is the greatest Western theologian, right? Where was he born? Not in California, right? 
In Africa. In Africa. Atagaste. Today is called Algeria. Now, nobody counts Algeria as Europe. Cyprian, third century bishop. Where was the bishop of? Carthage. Tertullian, third century. Where was he born? In Carthage. All of them are Africans. Even though today you paint the picture of Augustus, he looked like a Roman. He was not. He was a barber. The great the theologians in the West, that you count them as great from Cyprian or Irenaeus, this end of the first century, second century Irenaeus, the Bishop Leon, where did he come from? He came from Syria. He just, he was a refugee, a migrant to Europe. He was not European in any stretch of imagination. Cyprian, Tertullian, Augustine, the big, the giants of Western theologians, all outside of Europe. And then, of course, all the other theologians are from uh, uh, so-called Asia Minor. The Cappadocian Fathers, the Basil, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nyssa. You just go down the list and you see. The word Europe, the word of Europe was used for the first time in the 16th century to distinguish from the new found land in Latin America. So to say that Christianity took on a decisive character in Europe is historically false. Even, even the so-called European civilization European culture, huh? Europe, this, this mythical called Europe. It, you know, it's only one of the three empires at the time. Beyond the Roman Empire, was, what else do you have at the time? Byzantium and Islam. There were three empires vying for dominance. So it's not just Europe. There are three others empires that work in. I said, the Byzantine Empire, the Islamic, the Muslim Empire, and then you have Europe. And even within Europe, there is not one homogeneous Europe. There is French Christianity, Irish Christianity, they are very different. They are Iberian Christianity, uh, uh, Spain and Portugal. They're all different Christianities. So that instead of saying European Christianity, we should say European Christianities. They're very different in their liturgy, their culture and so forth. So it seemed to me that from the historical point of view, you have to say that the church was not European at all. It has its origin in the East. And in addition to movement towards the West, there was a movement towards the East. Syria, Iraq, 
Iraq was a great center of Christianity until the coming of Islam, until the seventh century. Missionaries come to China from Iraq. You know, it, it's so sad that the cradle of Christianity today, Palestine, Iraq, Syria, these are the center, the, all, the, the biggest center of Christianity, and they are disappearing more and more. One of the things that we never talk about the Iraq war is the impact on the Christian churches. Sure, I know that more than two million Iraqis have left the country, but Christians, Catholics, the only place where Catholics could practice was Iraq. One of my students became the bishop of uh, the Church of the East. They called it the Church of the East. Okay. And they're all gone now. The few, few Christians left in Iraq after the war. This is something that is not said. You just simply don't hear about these things. The destruction of Christianity at the heart central grade of Christianity by the Iraq war. So much so that maybe in a few years we have not enough Christians to celebrate Christmas in Bethlehem. The center of Christianity are disappearing from the Middle East because of our geopolitical choices. This Christianity today, therefore, is global. That brings me to the third part. Global Christianity. Christianity did not take a decisive character in Europe. Christianity spread towards the East. Christianity have all kinds of organizations, liturgies, not in Greek, it in Syriac liturgy, Syriac theology. It has texts in Arabic Christianity, Arabic Christians in Palestine, Christians in Iraq. They use the Arab Arabic in their liturgy, and they call God what? Allah. So Allah is not a Muslim God. It's a term that we Christians call our God Allah. It's just strange for some reason we say Allah is Muslim. No. In the liturgy, the, our Lord's prayer, God is Allah. But I like to now step to the last part of Asian Christianity. It is something very rarely known in the West. Uh, by here, I mean China. I know we know a lot about Christianity in India. Hmm? The traditional St. Thomas, one of the apostles, went to India. There, I often joke that there is more, uh, more evidence that St. Thomas was in India than, than St. Peter was in Rome. I got a rise out of historians for that saying. Uh, but... I am interested in the development of Christians in China. 
In the 16th century, they Christian missionary discover a stone steel, S-T-L-E, stone steel. It's nine feet tall, three feet wide. If you want to have a perfect uh, replica of this, go to uh, the, uh, what is that here, um, Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, okay? You go there. You enter and you see this nine feet stone replica of this one. It was discovered in the 16th century and the stone, on the stone was chiseled about 1,500 Chinese characters and 60 Syriac names. And we know that it was erected in the year 787, so the 8th century, in the capital of Xi'an, we call Xi'an, today we call Xi'an, okay, it's an ancient uh, Chinese empire, under the Tang Dynasty, T-A-N-G, the Tang Dynasty. The Tang Dynasty ruled from the middle of the 6th century, at least, to the beginning of the 10th century. It ended, so it ruled for about 300 years, end of the 6th century to the beginning of the 10th century, 901, 902, when it collapsed. Now, we knew from that stone that in the 7th century, there were Christian missionaries from, China, from Syria, monks, that went from Syria to China under the Tang emperors, and the stone record and celebrate a hundred years later of their development. That was 781, that was chisel, 1871, the chisel that. And they celebrate a hundred years of their arrival. So in this, that is the incontrovertible evidence that Christianity arrived in China in the 7th century under the Tang Dynasty. Now, what is most interesting about this stone is that within 1,500 characters, they express their Christian faith in the language that is understandable to the Chinese. What is interesting for me is this, that this is an attempt of expression Christian faith in what? Non-Greek language. Not only language, but categories, thoughts. i give you a few examples. The author of this text is a name, Adam. His Chinese name is Jing Jing, probably a Chinese monk uh, of the Syrian church. He says in that text, he described God as unchanging in perfect repose. Unchanging in perfect repose. Now, you know that this literally, lit word from word from the Dao De Jing. In other words, this Christian, to describe God, they, he took a expression from the Tao Te Ching, which is the Taoist text, right? We all know that. The classic of the Tao, Tao Te Ching, uh, presumably written by Lao Xi, and he, to describe God, 
He does not translate. He took out a word, an expression from a cold and cold pagan text. Of course, doesn't mean pagan; just simply different, non-Greek, and describe God. He speaks of Christianity as Tao, as the Tao, the way, and the language, of course, is from the text of Tao Te Ching. He says that Christ teach. A new teaching of non-assertion. Again, if you know Taoism, you know what it means: non-action, non-violence, not doing by doing, doing by not doing. This is the technical term of Taoism: non-assertion. And then he described God, Jesus, hang up the price on. Hang up the price on again. It's taken from religious text. It means that he died on the cross. But instead of saying that he died on the cross, he used the expression "hung up the price on." And then he took the vessel of mercy to go to heaven. Now, the vessel of mercy, you know, that is the language to describe Kuan Yin. The vessel of mercy, Guan Yin, the goddess of mercy, and Jesus. Instead of saying he ascended to heaven, they say, you know, if you want to to explain to the Chinese, say he took the vessel of mercy. And then he says, God created the world in two principles, two principles of nature. What's that? Chinese, Yang and Yin and. Yang. That's why how they describe creation. God created the principle yin and yang. And then he says, Christ teaches us, quote, how to rule both families and kingdom. This is the expression that comes from the book of Great Learning, Tashui, of the Confucian tradition. When you read this text, fifteen hundred words. You are amazed at the creative mind of the author, expressing Christian faith in the language that the Chinese could understand. Obviously, it is not Greek, neither Greek language nor Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy doesn't talk about yin yang, but That's the way how they express God created the universe. God created the two principles, the yin and the yang. If God created the yin and the yang, then God created everything because everything can be reduced to the yin and the yang, the masculine, the male, female, light and darkness, and so forth, the dry, the wet, and so forth. I give this as an example of how creative we can be. If we try to express our faith in the way of the culture of the people, of my people, your people, our people, why? Not because we want to de-Hellenize. I have no interest in de-Hellenizing anything. I am interested. We're interested in expressing the faith in the language of our culture. Why? Our religions, why? Because I believe the Holy Spirit of God is also present, active, transforming my culture, just as the Holy Spirit was transforming the Greek culture of the second, third, fourth, fifth century. Now, come back to the notion that he says 
that the fact that Christianity came to Greece and Spain was not by chance. Granted, true, it's not by chance. The encounter I quote between the biblical message and Greek thought did not happen by chance. Granted, true enough. But the encounter between the biblical message and the Syriac, the Coptic, the Armenian, the Ethiopian, the Assyrian, the Indian, and the Chinese, and then you add on the Japanese, the Vietnamese, the Africans, and Nigerian, and so forth and so forth, do not happen by chance either. They too occur under the power of the Holy Spirit within God's divine providence. Consequently, all these cultures, no less than the Greek culture, form an integral part of the Christian faith, or more exactly, of Christian theology. So that today, someone who is not European, who wants to study theology, must have knowledge of Greek and Greek history, Greek text. By the same token, if you are European and you want to study Christian theology today, you also must know Vietnamese theology, Chinese theology, Indian theology, and so forth and so forth. The fact of the matter is this. Most of our Asian theologians know Western theology as well or even better than Western theologians know Western theology. We do have the linguistic skill. We know Greek, we know Hebrew, we know Syriac, everything. But how many of Western theologians know the theology of the other countries? We are coming to a global Christianity. And this knowledge is more important than ever. Let me conclude then. I use Benedict XVI's statement about Christianity having achieved its decisive ground in Europe as a launching pad for my reflection. I use the statistics to show that we are faced with the challenge of thinking through the problem of Christian theology in languages other than Greek much more today than ever in the next 50 years. Most of us will not be alive to see this. And I will be sitting in heaven looking down and say how right I was. <laughs> or from hell looking up how right I was. <laughs> We are facing this problem. We cannot afford saying you need to become, absorb the Greek spirit before we become Christian. We cannot. We should not allow this to be said. And then I show you an example of how we come to this myth that Christianity is a Western religion because of faulty reading of history, and particularly history of Christian missions. We are simply delete the key, delete from our knowledge, from our textbooks of church, church history, all, most of the missionary work in beyond Syria, beyond the eastern side of Roman Empire. We look only the western part of Roman Empire. I am nothing against looking at the Western Empire, but I beg, I appeal to you to pay attention to the development of Christianities in Syria, Iraq, 
India, China, and you on and on and on. And then I finally gave you an example of this famous steel uh, erected in 781. If you go to the internet, Google put the uh, uh, um, what, uh, put in the word um, Xi'an steel, S-T-E-L-E, -E, you know, or Syrian Christianity in China, and you have the text available to you. You can read it. It's not very long. It's about three or four pages long. And to see an example of how Christianity was expressed in the language of the people. My conclusion then. The recognition of Christianities, the Christianity not Western, arises out of deep concern for the future of Christianity. I am not interested in history, simply. I am interested in the survival of Christianity. A statement of the Federation of Asian Bishops' Conferences put it starkly in 30 years ago, 1971. I quote, the decisive new phenomenon for Christianity in Asia will be the emergence of genuine Christian communities in Asia. Asian in their way of thinking, praying, living, communicating their own Christian experience to others. If the Asian churches do not discover their own identity, they will have no future. This was 30 years ago. How prophetic it was. Therein lies the challenge for Christian theology to come. If Pope Benedict could quote a Byzantine emperor, is it too far-fetched for us to imagine that a future pope will quote the sayings of Confucius, Lao Tzu, the Buddha, and other wise women and men of non-Christian religions? Perhaps it is not too audacious to imagine further that by doing so, this future pope will provoke not violent reactions, but universal rejoicing by recognizing the truly universal presence of holy wisdom in human history. Thank you very much.